You could spend the weekend doing the same old whatever, or you could conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Hey everybody, this is Richard Deitch, and welcome to the Sports Media Podcast. My producers are Patrick Antonetti and Sean Cherry. This week, uh, three guests, three excellent guests. First segment is the ESPN and Yes Network broadcaster Ryan Rucco, who uh, calls NBA games for ESPN, Yankees and Nets games for the Yes Network, and was just named ESPN's lead play-by-play commentator for women's college basketball. Ryan, uh, of course, also does the WNBA, but he now takes over for Adam Amin and uh, has the women's Final Four. So um, a really good assignment for him. I know his colleagues, Rebecca Lobo and Holly Rowe, really like him and advocated for him. So he discusses getting that new assignment as well as um, calling the NBA and what he thinks uh, will happen with the Nets this year, his podcast that he does with CC Sabathia, and then some other broadcasting stuff. So Ryan Rucco to start. He is followed by uh, two of my colleagues at The Athletic, Lindsay Adler and Olivia Witherite. They uh, discuss the impact of Kim Ang becoming the first female general manager in Major League Baseball. Both Lindsay and Olivia wrote excellent pieces on this. Uh, Lindsay's piece, sort of what it means for women in baseball and, and, uh, and what it means for women like her who, uh, who work in baseball on a day-to-day basis like Kim Ang does. And then Olivia wrote a piece about representation and being Korean-American and what it, what it meant to Olivia to see Kim Ang getting this high-profile job in baseball. And that's where our discussion um, uh, leads to, talking about uh, being females, working in sports, uh, in Lindsay's case, being a female on the Yankees beat, where representation might be heading. Uh, Olivia talks about the skills needed to become a social media lead in sports. And I think you'll enjoy that uh, that conversation. So three guests, Ryan Rucco, Lindsay Adler, and Olivia Withright coming up on the Sports Media Podcast. All right, as I said at the top, uh, Ryan Rico is both an ESPN and Yes Network broadcaster. Uh, you've seen him on ESPN's NBA coverage. You've seen him on ESPN's WNBA coverage. If you happen to live in the New York area or you have League Pass or whatever, you've seen him on Nets games and Yankees games. He's here uh, for that, but the real news hook for Ryan is he was recently named as ESPN's lead play-by-play commentator. For women's college basketball, that means he follows Adam Amin calling the uh, women's Final Four and uh, women's NCAA championship, knock on wood, that that happens. And Ryan Rucco joins me today on the Sports Media Podcast. Ryan, I actually think I forgot the, your podcast with uh, CC Sabathia as well. Feel free to uh, <laughs> hype. hype. I'll, I'll give you 30 seconds if you want to hype yeah. that very quickly. Why not? Uh, although that intro was lovely anyway, Richard. But yeah, sure. R2C2 is my podcast with CC Sabathia. Um, you could follow us on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. We're part of the Ringer Podcast Network. And we have a great time, uh, you know, discussing sports, entertainment, and sharing conversations with some of the, the biggest names in both of those fields. So go ahead. Follow it, man. <laughs> Ryan, so you've done the uh, the WNBA, and so I think a lot of women's basketball fans know your work from there with Rebecca Lobo and Kara Lawson Pryor, et cetera. Now you have um, now you have the assignment of being the lead for the women's college basketball 
coverage on ESPN, which obviously includes the women's final four. Uh, take my audience just through the, um, you know, you're a busy guy. You, you have a lot of dates in your contracts, but, mm-hmm. um, but this is clearly something you wanted. So how does, how does something like this come about? How do you get women's college basketball at ESPN? Yeah. So first and foremost, I do just want to say this. So don't forget, Richard, I I appreciate what an advocate you have been uh, for so many years and continue to be for the women's game. I know that does not go uh, unnoticed uh, in these circles. And so I appreciate the spotlight you always put uh, both on the WNBA and on women's college. Um, And, you know, for me, I've I've gotten so uh, I I mean, I've just absolutely fallen in love uh, with the WNBA over the last eight years doing it with Rebecca and Holly. And, you know, we all like to feel like we have a special bond and special chemistry. Um, And I I think, you know, it's been well received. Um, We obviously now have a lot of reps together, including in different styles of broadcasting, whether it's, you know, your typical remotes on site or it's Remy Pros, which is where the announced team's on site, but production is back in Bristol or Charlotte or wherever your studios might be, or just broadcasting games from studio like Rebecca and I had to do uh, throughout the WNBA. And, and so I think uh, the ingrained chemistry we have and the genuine friendships, you know, Rebecca, Holly, and I um, are ridiculously close friends. Um, and on the WNBA side of things, we're also incredibly close with LaChina Robinson, who we work with as well. And, and you know, I think that friendship breeds... Uh, good on-air chemistry, um, and and so do the reps. And and so, you know, we've become so familiar with each other. We love broadcasting together. Uh, and so when Adam um, got the gig uh, at Fox, as well as with the Bulls, and well-deserved, he's, as you know, he's, he's as good a guy as he is talented. Um, and that left the vacancy. I think Rebecca and Holly uh, both um, kind of reached out to uh, Pat Lowry, who's the coordinating producer uh, for WNBA, excuse me, for uh, women's college basketball. And maybe they reached out otherwise. I don't know if they reached out to Mike Schiffman as well and just kind of said like, hey, if, if Ryan could work it with his schedule, um, you know, we'd love to have him there. We know he'd be great. We all worked so well together. We all love the women's game. Um, and, uh, and so, um, you know, after they did that, they had kind of given me a heads up and just said, hey, we don't know if you can make it work with your schedule, but we think it'd be so fun. We'd love to do it. Um, and I was like, yeah, if I could make it work, sure. Um, and, you know, I, I don't know exactly when it was, but some time ago, Mike Schiffman had a call with me and just said, hey, we'd love for you to do this. You know, first of all, do you, you know, do you have interest? Um, and can you make it work with your other existing responsibilities? And, and we actually like went through comping last year's game schedule to uh, how it would have lined up with both my NBA on ESPN responsibilities as well as my Nets on Yes responsibilities. And there really weren't many conflicts at all um, because the women's college games in the regular season that we do, and it's not that many for our crew, but they're on Mondays and Thursdays. And I, I don't, I rarely ever have a Nets on Yes game on a Monday or Thursday. My games are typically Fridays, Saturdays, and Sundays when I'm filling in for Ian as he does his CBS assignments. Um, and even though it ends up totaling about you know 25 to 30 Nets games for me, they always, with the exception of a couple weeks throughout the year, fall in those days. So really wasn't much of a conflict. I'd say the only time there could be a little juggling is when we get to uh, the Sweet 16 and Elite Eight. But um, the good thing is uh, I think everybody is 
you know, willing to, you know, be flexible and knows how much I care about keeping both parties happy. So, um, so it actually worked out and it gives me a chance to work with my good friends and, and get to call another championship and get to tell a different chapter of these women's stories. So I'm pumped about it. Ryan, uh, what have they told you so far about traveling to any site? Yeah. So it's actually, you know what I've realized, Richard is like, as (laughs) there's like, when you're usually making a schedule, right? Typically, when we're when we're making announced schedules, you have this feeling like somebody else knows exactly what's happening and they just haven't been able to tell you yet, right? And so, if you're someone like me who's kind of juggling two networks, you might try and get a jump on, okay, who can I contact that might have an inkling as to what my schedule is, but they just haven't released it yet so I can get some intel and try and balance this. Well, in this case, there really isn't that person who knows things that just hasn't shared them yet. Everything is so fluid and we all are required to be so nimble because of, you know, the incredible circumstances that our country and our world is dealing with. So, as of now, I truly don't know how we are going to approach this. Um I have heard that we will have perhaps some games on site some games from studio, some games from at home. Uh, our incredible engineers at ESPN have come up with a state-of-the-art at-home uh, recording kit for uh, play-by-play that seems to be working well in the sports that that are using it right now. College football is using it. Uh, baseball has used it as well. Um, and, uh, and I think that it's sort of going to be a hybrid of how we do these games. You know, I would imagine for the NCAA tournament – you know, knock on wood, it happens, uh, as you said at the top uh, of the interview. I, I, I mean, hopefully, you know, that would be on site. But everything else, I think, is going to be sort of dependent on the circumstances with the virus and also our access to studios and the other technology. The good thing is, I know Rebecca and I are unbelievably comfortable with calling games from studio. So if that's our model for the regular season, we feel great about that. Um, and then we can, you know, readjust as we, you know, get towards conference tournaments and, and the NCAA tournament. But the first couple games we're going to do, Richard, uh, on uh, the Sunday after Thanksgiving and then the Friday um, after that f- uh, are going to be from Mohegan Sun. So Rebecca and I will do those games from site. We'll get in the day before. Um, have uh, we'll have to test quarantine in our rooms till we get the results, as well as have had an at-home test a couple days prior. So those will be on site, and that's easy access for both of us. Rebecca driving from Connecticut, and me driving from New York City. Ryan, have you um, have you, you given that you have called uh, NBA games for multiple outlets, um, and you've called the WNBA, obviously, for ESPN. I'm curious about this. And maybe the answer is there is no difference, which would actually be a cool answer, but I'll ask it anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, when you get feedback from producers or when you get feedback from coordinating producers, network executives, et cetera, is the feedback the same for both women's basketball and the NBA? Or is the feedback different? And if it's different, how so? You know, that's interesting. Um, I think... The feedback from executives is very much the same. You know, Tim Corrigan, who is our outstanding coordinating producer for NBA on ESPN and also oversees the WNBA, um, as well as, you know, actually produces the NBA finals. He will write us up like the same sort of in-depth feedback for 
the WNBA finals as if, you know, as he would if he listens to a specific NBA game. Um, and he touches base with us the same way for WNBA as he does for NBA. Um, I think that, you know, there's certainly an added level of investment, if you will, in trying to be creative for the WNBA in its promotion because we know, hey, you know, there's there's a lot of growth that can happen with that sport. And so I think we see a high level of engagement from executives who want to see the game grow and who know it should, um, like Carol Stiff, who's done an unbelievable job advancing women's sports in her time at ESPN. She will be, you know, very hands-on and collaborative with us asking, okay, how do we do this, you know? Um, and so I, I think that, I, I mean, I feel like ESPN really does a good job of uh, its top executives paying a lot of attention to women's sports um, and investing in them and giving us feedback on them. Stephanie Drooley, who's one of our top executives, I know she wrote, you know, us beautiful handwritten notes just applauding our coverage at the end of the WNBA season. So it feels similar. The one area I would say it's different, Richard, is sometimes when we hear back from uh, league executives. You know, you might, when I'm talking to people around NBA circles, I may get, you know, feedback from people saying like, oh, you know, you, you do such a good job on the games or we love, you know, hearing this crew or whatever it might be or, you know, you guys make us laugh. Or if I'm talking with the Nets coaches, you know, and they hear me doing an ESPN game, right? They'll be like, oh, we love listening to you guys. That, you know, we, we like we like hearing how informed your ESPN broadcasts are. Or we love you guys on Nets on Yes, you know, make us laugh. But the interesting thing that Rebecca, Holly, LaChina, and I get from WNBA team personnel is they will say, thank you so much for the energy you put into the broadcast and and the investment you make in the broadcast and how much passion you bring to the airwaves because it helps you know the credibility of our sport um, and that's something that I think applies more to sports that don't have as large an audience right or as ingrained a fan base and what I think is really cool about that from a WNBA standpoint is it fosters a really collaborative atmosphere where we all feel like we're working together to have a tangible impact on growing a sport that we know is worthy of a massive audience. Um, and so that is, I guess, one difference I would sense between, you know, WNBA and NBA. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance, too, with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. All right, a couple more here. Um, roughly, how, how many uh, Brooklyn Nets telecasts do you do a year for, for Yes? Uh, around, around 25 to 30. Okay. All right, so that's pretty significant. You get a real feel for the team. Um, mm -hmm. What is it like uh, in your position to call a team, playoff team last year, a lot of fun, those guys compete, but then this year has the potential to be like anything, anything from like if it all works, uh, maybe the NBA finals. If none of it works, it it's like the biggest docudrama since like, 
you know, dynasty in Dallas. It's like, do you, uh, um, I don't know. Do you, does it, do you have a little bit of an extra bit of like juice, uh, in your, you know, it's not, I'm not really asking a great question, but like, you know, are you sort of a little bit more, uh, you cover the NBA, so it's obviously, yeah. obviously a great job, but are like you more charged because this year Kevin Durant is in town, Kyrie Irving's in town. There's going to be national focus on the Nets where there hasn't been in the last couple of years. So what's it like in, in someone like in your position or Ryan Eagle's position who, you know, you're, you're calling these guys, you're around these guys every day. Man, I mean, of course it's more exciting. Like I, I mean, I mean when you're when you're calling 19 win seasons and 20 win seasons and you know 23 win seasons and you're just it, it's I don't think it's as difficult in a sport like basketball compared to baseball when you have a bad team, right? Because the action sort of sustains itself when you're calling the game. Um, but you know, like I can't imagine being you know, doing play by play day in and day out for a hundred loss baseball team because. There's only about 15 minutes of play-by-play action throughout a three-hour baseball game. So it's like, what are you even talking about with such an awful team, right? Well, with with basketball, at least you're able to fill the airwaves. But, man, when you're in some of those games where you're down 25 midway through the third quarter and the team is 30 games under 500, like, yeah, like the, the, it's, not the, it's not the peak of the p- profession. And so to have, to have attention around the team – and to have stardom and to have greatness to watch. I mean, one of the things I think is just amazing about calling basketball is, you know, I mean, who knows if this will be the case this year, but normally you're sitting courtside watching these unbelievable individual talents and they ball out every single day, right? Like one of the reasons, you know, a a courtside seat is a worthy investment if you're trying to splurge on a sporting event is because you know when you go to that game, LeBron's going to score 20 and have 10 boards, right? Like he's going to. You just know it. It's not, you know, you could you could go see Garrett Cole and he might give up six runs in three innings that day. That's the nature of baseball, right? Or Ken Griffey could go 0 for 5 or 3 strikeouts. In basketball, I mean, these people, they ball out basically every single day, the true stars. Um, and so I can't wait for that. to. And you never know what they could do. Like I, every time I and or I get ready to call a game, there's a chance we're going to be calling a 50-point performance from Kyrie or Kevin Durant. And you think about where this team was just you know four years ago, and it's hard to kind of get back in that mindset because things have gotten so much better. But when Sean Marks took this over, I was like, well – if they could be a contender in six years, that would be a miracle. Instead, you know, this dude did it in half the time. So, I mean, Richard, it makes our job so much better having these stars now and having a real chance to compete and just having the inte- the attention and excitement around the team. You've seen what's happened in uh, the Eastern Conference. Uh, Milwaukee made a move, obviously, with Drew Holiday. Uh, Gordon Hayward leaves the Celtics. Raptors lost a couple of guys. Um, Philadelphia made some changes. You know, the whole conference, you know, the Heat are still the Heat. The, the whole conference uh, feels like uh, from top to bottom, it's a little bit um, it's a little bit stronger because I think some of the bottom teams have, uh, have gotten better. If you had to guess today, presuming that um, Durant and Kyrie stay healthy, what do you expect from the Nets? I, I think that they are absolutely – uh, finals contenders. Um, I think one thing that helps them as well is, you know, I I think they have a GM who has shown incredible creativity. So if there are things that they need throughout the season 
to augment an otherwise championship caliber core. I think one, they have the assets to be able to do that. And two, you know, they have the, the GM who I think is creative um, enough to do that. Uh, so I, I think I look at them as if they're not, you, maybe we want to seed Eastern Conference favorites to Miami because, hey, they just went to the finals. And also, I think they've made some really, even if they're under the radar, shrewd moves to supplement what was already an incredibly strong roster. Um, and so Miami, I'd say, you know, you put as the favorites because of what they just did. Milwaukee, just behind them. I love the moves Milwaukee's made this offseason. And then I would put Brooklyn right there. Uh, and at the end of the day, Kevin Durant looks like Kevin Durant, and you are probably going into the Eastern Conference playoffs, and even if you're looking at Miami and Milwaukee and saying, oh, they had slightly better regular seasons, if you're the Nets, you'd be saying, yeah, but we're putting the best player on the floor. Kevin Durant, if he's healthy, will be the best player in the Eastern Conference. So I, I think they absolutely should have um, you know, no doubt about being a real contender to win the East, um, and as long as Durant and Kyrie stay healthy— I think that I think that they will be uh, a serious finals contender. Last one for me is um, you do your podcast with CC Sabathia, and you know you're you're part of a um, sort of an interesting um, podcast grouping to me in that an athlete is working with a broadcaster or an athlete is you know is working with a non-athlete on a podcast, um, mm -hmm. and it seems to have really worked well with you and CC. And I wonder. Um, and this is not necessarily a new concept, but I do feel like it's a concept that certainly can continue. And I wonder, heading forward, um, do you see more of this? you see more former athletes, retired athletes sort of partnering with uh, traditional broadcasters in a, in a podcast to get that dynamic? Or, and maybe we will see that, but we also see, as you know, Ryan, uh, just uh, a lot of former athletes or former coaches just do their own podcast. They don't need a, like a quote-unquote yeah. traditional broadcaster but I, I think that's an interesting dynamic i think you and cc have a good chemistry you guys come from different places and to me that makes for an interesting um show so i wonder from your perspective you know the replication of that seems to me that could be a pretty good formula heading forward for people yeah man i i i appreciate that and i agree i think that one thing that really helped cc and me is we had organically developed a relationship um and so it wasn't it wasn't necessarily a case of like, okay, like, you know, I want to do a podcast. Who's an athlete I think would be good and picking him? Or CC, like, oh, I want to do a podcast. Who's a host like that I, you know, I can, you know, just deal with or, you know, get along with enough. It was genuinely, you know, years of us talking to each other about like, we should do something together someday. Um, and so there was a real organic relationship and and even a thought process behind it for years before it actually came to fruition. Um, but I do think it should happen more, Richard, and I think it can. I think that, you know, a lot of times home broadcasters for teams do have, do develop, you know, genuine relationships uh, with players on the team. Um, and maybe they're, maybe they're friendships, maybe they're acquaintances, maybe they're just mutual respect but they're enough of a foundation that you could definitely have a really good podcast. Um, and then that relationship develops even more once you start doing it, right? And so 
for CeCe, I know one of the things CeCe always jokes about is he'll he'll listen to certain podcasts and be like, man, they need a host because they need a host. And he likes, you know, he likes that, you know, I can handle all the sort of X's and O's of things, right? And he doesn't have to worry about segueing or, you know, handling reads or, or whatever it might be, right? And I'm able to, you know, get us through topics. But he is, for me, the number one person I've ever seen in sports when it comes to disarming a guest. I have never seen somebody better at disarming a guest than CC Sabathia for a couple reasons. One, he's obviously incredibly credentialed. Two, he is unbelievably authentic. I don't care who you are. CC isn't going to act like he's something other than who he is or share you know, an opinion that's not true to who he is because of who he's talking to. He has no problem being his genuine self. And I think people respect that, whoever they are, you know, whether it's, you know, Alex Rodriguez or it's DeAndre Jordan or, you know, take your pick or it's Garrett Cole, you know, they respect that CeCe is going to be his genuine self. And, and you know, then we do have some weird common interests, like we're both diehard Star Wars and Harry Potter fans. And CeCe always jokes about that too. He's like, you know, we come from, it's hilarious because we come from very different backgrounds, but we're both into the same nerdy stuff. <laughs> and I'm like, yeah, man, we're, we, you know, we both also love orcas, which is a random one, Richard, but we do. Um, so it's, it, I think that those relationships do exist. And I think it's helpful because, you know, there is, you, there's a, there's a certain skill set that comes with the reps of being a broadcaster, right? That allows you to smoothly, transition or at least have some experience teeing up subjects and and you know kind of oh this person said this this guest said this we got to get back to that at some point and just knowing how to do that right and then there is a comfort that the guest feels from having somebody like Cece that they would never feel with just having me right or just having the broadcaster and then there's an experience factor too. CC's had experiences that I've never had and never will have that he can relate to with the guests. And then also, you know, the skill set broadcast wise develops with reps. Like CC does all these nuanced broadcasty things now, uh, in addition to his natural skill set and the way he naturally gets along with guests. So I, I I think I think CC is a unique entity in his personality uh, and how intelligent he is how uh, welcoming he is, how authentic he is, and how credentialed he is. But I think when you can find that kind of person, uh, that athlete, and pair them with somebody who they have a genuine respect for, um, and that's one thing I get. CeCe has always, like, he always has given me props and praises, and I think it's it's helped me in this relationship as well with the podcast and, and knowing that I have his respect and it helps me to be my best self. And there are other athletes who have that relationship with broadcasters, you know, and I think when you can find those, you could definitely, you know, come up with a great podcast. I'm telling you right now, Zach Britton would do an unbelievable podcast and he has great relationships with broadcasters. Like that's an athlete I think of right away who I know would be incredible. Um, and so I think those relationships, that's obviously one that comes to the top of mind, but I think they're out there, man. So yeah, I think it can work. Hmm. I appreciate that. Ryan Rucco is an ESPN and Yes Network broadcaster. You see him on uh, ESPN's NBA coverage, ESPN's WNBA coverage, the Yes Network's Nets and Yankees coverage. And he was recently named 
to serve as ESPN's lead lead play-by-play commentator for women's college basketball alongside Rebecca Lobo and Holly Rowe. And uh, and I thank Ryan Rucco for uh, his time. Ryan, uh, best of luck with all this, and uh, thanks for joining me today on the Sports Media Podcast. Thank you for having me, Richard. I really appreciate it, man. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. As I said at the top, uh, Lindsay Adler and Olivia uh, Witherite, if I, if I blew your name, Olivia, just correct me and call me an idiot. But they are two of my colleagues at The Athletic, uh, incredibly smart and great at what they do. Uh, Lindsay covers the Yankees on a day-to-day basis. Um, if you're a Yankee fan or a baseball fan, you probably have read her work. Olivia is the social media lead for The Athletic, um, and The Athletic social media is like on point and ridiculously good. So um, for those of you in the industry who are into social media and sort of into um, how those strategies exist, Olivia is one of the point people at The Athletic. And I'm pleased to be joined by both of them today. They join me together. Lindsay, Olivia, thanks for joining me today on the Sports Media Podcast. Yeah, thanks for having us. All right, Lindsay, I'm going to start with you. And um, you wrote a column on um, what Kimming becoming the general manager of the Miami Marlins means for women in baseball. And um, I was glad to see that it it sort of got some steam and maybe going viral is a little too strong, like in the world that we live in. But like in our little circles, it did go viral. And, and it, so many people in the industry and the, and the business read it. Um, and it was first person. I know that's not something you always love to do, but I appreciate it. You put yourself out there and you you know, you like sort of provided something that's really important. And that's like a perspective that, you know, a white male dude like myself, like, doesn't think about all the time. And like, sort of it, what, what, what does this hire mean for women in baseball? And does it change sort of the, uh, the paradigm when, you know, for more women to get management jobs, for more women to, um, get baseball writing jobs. So go as long as you want here and just sort of take me through your thought process of, uh, one, why you decided to write the piece, and two, just writ large, like what does Kim Ng's uh, hiring mean beyond Kim Ng? Um, I wrote the piece because Ken Rosenthal called me at a time when I am not usually awake, which is before 9 a.m., and uh, suggested that I start thinking about and working on a column about, you know, sort of what it means for women in baseball. And at the time, I was like, yeah, sure, I'll do that. Um, you know, I thought about like other people like call, do some reporting or whatnot. He's like, no, write about, write about what it means to you and from your perspective and from what you have seen with your experiences in the industry. And I actually didn't think that I had um, that strong of feelings on it necessarily. I think to exist as a woman in a very male dominated industry, you you see these things, you feel these things, you recognize them, but you have to like operate with a little bit of like repression, I think. Um, and so I started writing and it just kind of, ultimately it, it came out very quickly because I think at the end of the day, 
This is something that I think about um, more than anything else in my life, maybe other than my dog. And it's, you know, one of the top things that I talk about with other women who cover baseball. And I was just really glad to see the widespread just celebration for Kim. And there were, you know, there were columns like mine or people in my situation who I understand that Kim has worked in baseball for my entire life. She's, you know, eminently qualified. She's overqualified in a way that's sort of enraging, you know, but it is still a big step for women and women of color in the industry. But then there's also just a lot of, you know, your typical baseball guys who were just like, good, this is great. You know, we know Kim to be a very capable, very skilled, very experienced baseball person. And this is right for her. And so that was what was really nice for me. But I think the thing that was really frustrating is sort of the dust sort of settled was, well, once you look at it in retrospect, the hiring uh, just, just seemed so so obvious. You know, I don't know that necessarily every job she interviewed for previously was the right job for her, but um, the the resume and the, you know, sort of the accolades that were getting circulated around, I was like, wait a second, this, uh, this really is a big deal. And the fact that it is so, so blatantly delayed. I I'm going to get to living a second, uh, Lindsay, but one follow-up there. What was the reaction to that, to the piece that you wrote within Baseball Circles? And did anything surprise you? Did anything uplift you? Did anything disappoint you? The reaction was good. Um, I heard from, you know, a number of men. I think, I imagine, you know, if, if I read, or when I did read other women's columns or pieces, or I imagine it if I had read it, um, it's kind of like, well, you're kind of reading about your own experiences. There were, there were some women who are coming up the ranks who said, you know, that they felt like it was nice to see some of these subtleties explored, but it was really a lot of men who I think think about these things and are cognizant of these things. But a lot of the subtleties I think are just not, um, those are not necessarily things that, that float maybe beyond our circle. And so I am, I'm hoping it was, informative for, for people who care about these things, for people who are interested in these things. And, um, that was what was, that was what I, I appreciated. I hoped, I just hoped that it, um, that it was informative for, for, for people who were looking for that. It was, uh, Olivia, you, um, you wrote a piece on Kim Ng and here's the first sentence of that piece. The Marlins general manager looks like me. I saw it with my own eyes during Kim Ng's introductory press conference. Um, you are Korean American and you wrote a piece about um, sort of representation and, you know, what her hiring means. And it was really interesting. And again, another piece that um, really got a lot of traction in social media because you don't cover like Lindsay, Olivia, major league baseball on an everyday basis, but Kim Ng's hiring, um, had significance for you as a woman who works in sort of the larger sports, uh, sports media, sports editorial ecosystem. So I'll, I'll ask you a very similar question. Um, why did you decide to write this piece? Why, did, why was it important to you to write this for the athletic? Sure. So similar story to Lindsay's actually, I put out a tweet when 
it was announced that Kim Ang would be the next GM. And um, one of our fellow writers at The Athletic, Tashawn Reed, reached out to me and said, hey, you should think about writing a piece about this. And like you said, I'm not a full-time writer. So I was really hesitant. I'm really rusty. Um, but the more I sort of sat down and thought about it, I realized sort of similar to Lindsay that, hey, I have more thoughts about this than just what I put out in that singular tweet. So uh, I started to put something together. Before I was at The Athletic, I worked for Masson, the Orioles and Nationals Network. So I'm used to being around um, a clubhouse or a press box on a day-to-day basis where you look around and, you know, you see a lot of white men on a day-to-day basis. So I felt like um, this moment meant so much to me personally, and that's what I hope sort of came through in the column. I'm not used to talking about myself. Clearly, you can probably tell (laughs) singularly through this podcast, but also uh, on a grander scheme, I'm definitely not super comfortable with writing a column or things like that. But it ended up being really therapeutic for me to put on paper exactly what this hiring meant to me. And I hope that in the grand scheme of things, that even if it impacted one or two other people, that it was worth it for me. It was definitely a challenge. But um, at the end of the day, I think I was able to hopefully show and at least prove to myself that representation is super important um, on a day-to-day level, especially in, or not especially in, but in the sport that we work in, where a lot of times we just frankly don't see it. I'm going to get to representation in a little bit with you, Olivia. But again, I want to follow up on this too. What um, what was the reaction to the piece that you wrote? Uh, it, it, you know, from anything positive, negative, or surprising? Yeah, there was a little bit of negative pushback, not a lot, but I think that um, that's sort of what happens when you comes with column writing and me sort of inserting myself into this situation. I was really hesitant about that, and I think that. Uh, The editors, our MLB editors, Emma and Casey at The Athletic did a really great job of helping me sort of hone in on exactly what I wanted to say. But overall, so much positive sentiment. I was really, really grateful to see that, especially on social media and just from a lot of fellow colleagues and other writers in the industry, too, reaching out to me and thanking me for putting it together. Um, It meant a lot. And I think it sort of shows also that there aren't maybe a lot of people who could write a column like this just because of, you know, I am Korean American and there aren't a lot of Korean American or Asian American journalists working in the United States in baseball. So I was really happy to see that and just really grateful that um, I got a lot of nice feedback from that. It was really, really supportive and I felt like I sort of needed it in that moment. I was a little unsure. So I'm super grateful. Uh, Lindsay, um, I want to ask you about um, this. This is sort of going to come off like, like, kind of like not the greatest question, sort of how it's phrased. But you, you will understand the the question, and that is, how much do you feel your gender on a daily basis in baseball? How how are how much are you sort of always either reminded or poignantly aware that that you are a female in baseball circles? It is so hard to describe this because I have tried to describe it to some women who are like casual baseball fans over the last week or week and a half. Um, It's really hard. You know, there's times where it really feels like it doesn't matter. There are times when I feel like honestly being around men and conversing with mostly men 
throughout the day, whether it's my friends or people I cover, um, sort of makes it difficult for me to exist in larger female-only circles. Um, I think the example that may help is that like when I started covering the Yankees and the Mets in before spring training 2018, I went out and I bought, I bought mostly like gray cotton dresses, gray sweaters, things like this, just very, very neutral clothing. And it's just, I wanted to present as neutrally as possible. And that's, it, it's a pipe dream. You know, I have hair that goes down to my waist. I have a very high-pitched voice. I am clearly just a woman in, in, a, in a baseball clubhouse. But that was something that I felt like would at least sort of take one element of, I guess, femininity off the table. But now, two years in, two and a half, two and a half, three years in, I'm much more comfortable. And this spring training, I had packed a pair of white pants with butterfly prints on them. And I was like, you know what? Uh, it's, it's a nice day in Florida. I'm just going to wear these to the clubhouse. And at this point, I am much more comfortable wearing floral clothing. I'm much more comfortable wearing butterfly pants. You know, it's just, you have these kind of like old school baseball people being like Adler, nice pants. Uh, and it doesn't necessarily matter. But the thing is like, there is a big instinct for me to kind of downplay some of those like traditional presentations, but also nothing I do can make it so that I am not seen as different. And I think it's, it's good and it's bad. I feel I feel the effects of being a woman who covers baseball when players are more open with me about their, about some of their families, about, you know, it's, it's very different. If I say to a player, hey man, can I talk to your wife? Um, so it's, it's just a, it's just a strange range. And I wouldn't say that it's necessarily bad or painful or fraught. I think the women who've come before me have really helped kind of um, lay the groundwork so that it's not so bizarre, but it is, it is definitely an omnipresent thing and something I think about a lot. I appreciate you answering that. You know, I can't relate to it, but it, it does honestly sound exhausting to have to do those calculations on a daily basis. That's not something I've ever had to do, um, in my, in my career. That's how I would describe it. I would say that I don't necessarily feel that, you know, the people I cover respect me less because I'm a woman. I think at the end of the day, the people who I cover care that I am hopefully presenting an accurate and interesting look at the New York Yankees. So I don't think I am, you know, necessarily competing with the other people on my beat in that way. But I do think the job is maybe a little bit more exhausting for me in a way that's just very difficult to describe. Olivia, I wonder if you can relate to that because in your piece, you talked about being um, 18 and working for, um, the Orioles and Nationals own broadcast network. That's uh, MASN for uh, those of you who are outside of uh, Baltimore, D.C. area. And you wrote something that, um, um, you know, you, you, you sort of in your piece, you were sort of examining um, just your own role in, in this sort of environment and, you know, how being young impacted it, how being Asian impacting it, how being a woman impacting it. Was it some combination of all of the three? And I just wonder from your years in, um, in the business, I would, I would guess that you must be, you must relate 
to what Lindsay said, even though, you know, you were necessarily in a baseball clubhouse every day, but you were, you were working in sports every day. Yeah. So I started working in the industry really young. And I think obviously when you're 18 years old and even uh, myself now at 27, I'm very aware that I have a lot to learn about myself. And so as I sort of entered the industry, I was raised and I addressed this in the piece. I was raised, um, I'm adopted. So I was raised in a really white area. So I sort of just thought that that was the way the world looked. And so when I started working in baseball, um, that sort of confirmed my like false idea because everywhere I looked around, you know, it was just like white men and things like that. So as I started to grow in the industry and I started off as an intern and sort of rose through the ranks at Masson, I started to realize that sometimes, you know, I wasn't always being taken seriously or things like that. And then I sort of had this three-headed monster looking back at me. Oh, is it because I'm young or is it because I'm a person of color? Is it because I'm a woman? And it took me a really long time to (laughs) sort of figure out that that was happening to me. And when I did, obviously it was a little jarring and obviously sort of naive to make it that far in my life without realizing that. But um, I think sort of wrapping it back into Kim Ang, I'm really grateful that now people in the public eye will have the opportunity to succeed on a public level, but also to see how she handles when she might make a bad move or there's some shortcomings there. I think it's really important for people to see um, a well-rounded individual and a human being in such a public role. Livy, I want to stick with you. Um, where does your um, optimism or pessimism lie when it comes to representation in the sports media, sports sort of management world, heading forward with people who look like you? Um, you know, I am more optimistic than not because I have faith in the generations after mine. They're far more multicultural. They just they look at things differently. They look at gender differently, sexuality differently. But I'm also not naive. And um, maybe people were saying that about the generation of the 60s. And then look what happened. So where, is, where, does your, where, does your, where, where do you stand or where do you lie on, uh, if we look a little bit long scale, on, on, on these organizations looking more reflective of what America looks like? I'm actually really optimistic, which is... Maybe I'm being naive once again, but I am. And I think that a big reason for that is, first of all, you have someone like Kim Ang in such a powerful position, but then there are also um, people like me or like Lindsay in roles now where we're available to, you know, sort of see the next generation of sports writers or sports media people coming up in the industry. And it's something that is so on the forefront of my mind is representation and diversity and the importance of having multiple people's thoughts in a room. And so I think that as I personally and other people start to move into positions where we can hire people and sort of shape the future of the industry, I know that because those ideas are forefront in my mind, I think that we'll start to see some widespread change. Before I uh, before I finish with Lindsay on asking her uh, a baseball a couple of baseball questions about sort of the Marlins and, and Kim Ang's challenges, uh, Livy, for my audience who um, there are a lot of um, 
young people who listen, people who are in college who want to get into the industry. Can can you uh, can you tell people what you do on a on a daily basis and um, and how one would go about trying to get that job, let's say, if they were 18, 19, 20 years old right now? Yes. So I am the social media lead at The Athletic. So I do social and digital marketing for all of our accounts. I think that I get this question a lot of how you can sort of break into the industry. I was very lucky and very aware that I didn't start at square one. I sort of had an opportunity to start as an intern really young. I would say specifically um, to just make sure that you're really plugged into what you want to do. So if you want to work for a certain team or things like that, make sure that you're aware of what's going on in the industry as the sports industry and also the social media industry. And then in addition to that, I would say just um, make sure you're really willing to work and that you love it. That sounds silly, but I work a lot of hours. When I was in a baseball schedule, I obviously worked a ton of hours. And I think that if you aren't 100% passionate about it, don't do it. I think it sounds kind of silly to discourage people, but it is a lot of work um, to cover something as fun as baseball. But I would just encourage people to make sure that that's really what they want to do and then go for it. Um, Maybe it's on a local level, interning with like a radio station or a TV network, sort of how I got my start. And then from there, I was able to have access to see and do a lot of things that some bigger writers that I admired were doing um, on an everyday basis. Mm, I appreciate that. You know, once upon a time, Olivia, you know, if you, if you were sort of handling social for the athletic, it would have been very, very small, <laughs> minimal amount of followers for all the different uh, social media uh, outlets. But now, um, you know, I feel like you're controlling basically like a small country with the with the, with the amount of uh, with the amount of uh, combined. Let's even just take Twitter for example. The amount the amount of um, Twitter followers the athletic. Uh, accounts have and then combine them with all the writers sort of followers that we have um that that's a pretty that's a pretty powerful social media (laughs) hey don't give me a big head over here (laughs) (laughs) i'm mark chapman welcome to the planet premier league podcast each week, Cesc Fabregas, Nader Manua and myself talk all things Premier League. As a player, you don't have time to talk. No. You don't have time to make a plan. You just need to deal with wave after wave after wave. We watched Coach Carter and he said, oh, afterwards, the game's just about doing this for your teammates. And I remember looking around halfway through the film and half the squad was asleep. <laughs> Planet Premier League. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. All right, Lindsay, we're going to finish up with baseball questions. All right? So... I admit my knowledge of the Marlins is cursory. <laughs> I'm not apologizing for that, by the way. Uh, but listen, they had a ridiculously good year. I mean, almost an inconceivable year, given all the things that happened with that team with COVID. They still ended up making the playoffs. Um, they have been lambasted for um, some of their trades over the last couple of years since the sort of the Jeter era came in. But now, at least if you sort of look, they, I mean, it seems like they do have some talent in the minors. So uh, a very, very broad question, like how challenging is this job for Kim Ang? Uh, what is the Marlins talent base? And like, was it, I'm glad she has the job, obviously, but like, is it a, can you be a successful GM, I guess, is my question of the floor of the Miami Marlins. 
Well, the fact that you almost called them the Florida Marlins kind of. I know. Nice catch. Relevant they have been. Um, (laughs) I honestly think that like, you know, I think I saw a lot of jokes and commentary like, wow, Kim Ang really likes a challenge. But like, okay, I think what people are forgetting is that the Marlins are no longer owned by Jeffrey Loria. They no longer have David Sampson in the front. You know, it's like it's it's different. She very clearly has the support of Derek Jeter. Um, It's, you know, from my point of view, like the Marlins are kind of like Yankees South. You know, they have Gary Denbow is there. I believe he's in a farm director role. Um, A couple other people I've known throughout player development have also gone to the Marlins. And Don Mattingly seems like a wonderful manager and he worked his ass off this year to keep that team you know, on track through a lot of adversity. And I honestly think that this is a pretty good role for any GM. They have a good talent base. They are very clearly excited throughout the organization about what they're doing. And I think, I think it can be really fun. I mean, I think over the course of a full season or, you know, 140 games, if that's what it comes to next year or something like that, do I necessarily think that the Marlins will be contenders? Probably not. No, but it definitely doesn't look as far off as it as it used to. And I think that's I think that's a really important thing. I think it's I think it's really important that in this role, Kim clearly has the support of Jeter and the organization, and then also just knows a lot of the very established baseball people who have who have been there. And I think the mark of a good GM, and this is something that I see a lot covering the Yankees, is knowing how to delegate, knowing how to staff up around you. And I think she already has a good foundation for that. And um, it will probably be, I mean, I would think it would be a pretty attractive place for, um, you know, for, for smart baseball people to to go in the future. Lindsay, I will say, uh, I, I know that um, you're going to be focused on the Yankees, and the Yankees will always be good, just given the finances. But it's I feel like your beat is going to be so much more fun now that the Mets have uh, Steve Cohen as an owner, because like part of the narrative of both teams is going to be like who controls back page supremacy in New York, which I think just as a Yankees beat writer, as well as a Mets beat writer, is just going to make both jobs more fun. You, you buy that? Um. Unfortunately, no. I think, ah! <laughs> you know, Yankees fans, I think there's still a lot of Yankees fans who really love the George Steinbrenner years. The like, it's something I think about a lot is how like George kind of accidentally um, turned that fan base into thinking that players should just be paid what they're worth. You know, I get a lot of people saying just like, just, just pay, just, just pay for whoever it takes. And I think if Steve Cohen comes in here and he's in a really advantageous position because he didn't lose money last season, like everyone else, if he comes in, he just starts spending, he starts building a team. Uh, my Twitter mentions, my story comments, my Instagram message requests are just going to be like, why aren't the Yankees spending? <laughs> why aren't the Yankees in on this guy? Why aren't this? Um, I think it's definitely going to be really interesting because, yeah, for however long, we just haven't seen the Mets operating like the Yankees do. And I think a lot of Yankees fans feel like through the way that the Yankees build their roster now, um, which from my point of view has a lot of merit. Um, 
but I'm not a fan. Uh, I think, I think a lot of fans see it as kind of decidedly un-Yankee like right now. And so if Steve Cohen comes in and starts running the Mets in the way that Yankees fans think the Yankees should be run, um, I mean, it's going to be kind of funny and kind of, um, kind of a train wreck. I, <laughs> yeah, that's, um, that's kind of what I see coming down the line. Get, get that Lind, get that Lindor column ready when, when the Mets get him. No, no. All I, right. Yeah, I can't. <laughs> Lindsay Adler, uh, covers the Yankees for, uh, the athletic, um, writes some fantastic stuff. Follow her on Twitter. If you're certainly if you're a Yankees fan or if you're a baseball fan. And as I mentioned, Olivia with right is uh, social media lead for the athletic. And, uh, just honestly, just independently of her coming on this podcast and me working with her, she, the athletic social media is really, really good. She is talented as shit. She knows what she's doing. Um, Lindsay, Olivia, thank you so much for joining me today on the sports media podcast. And uh, I'm sure we'll talk in the future. Have a good one. All right, back in the studio. My thanks to Ryan, Lindsay, and Olivia for uh, popping on the podcast and for their time and conversation. Um, if you like this kind of stuff, head to the archives. Uh, check out what we have. Uh, prior podcast to this was Muffet McGraw, the uh, Hall of Fame basketball coach from Notre Dame, who's now an ACC network broadcaster, and Grant Wall, and one of the preeminent soccer journalists in this country. Before that, James Andrew Miller on the ESPN layoffs. Before that, Chris Fowler on uh, calling college football this year. Jordan Cornette and Shea Pepler Cornette being a married couple doing radio for ESPN head to the archives uh, check out the things you like please uh, if you do like this leave us a five star review and a nice uh, um, a nice note on uh, iTunes or Stitcher or wherever you uh, you listen to this stuff uh, all that stuff uh, helps for sure alright again I want to thank everybody Cadence 13 from uh, Chris Corcoran to Spencer Brown to John McDermott obviously thanks to Patrick and Sean and we will see you soon on the Sports Media Podcast